Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 9, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit, The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. And today, we start the on-ramp to the Easter season, the holiday of spring, and I drove in on ice-covered roads this morning. So in every way, the Easter season is the season of hope. (laughs) And I'm hoping at some point the ice goes away. But we're going to go on a little two-month adventure here that I'm calling Death to Life. So the words adventure and death don't always bump up against each other. Is death really an adventure? Um, Well, maybe we don't want to take that ride at Disneyland. Jesus, though, is in our face about death, actually. He, He comes back to this idea of death leading to life, life then going into death and coming back out again into life, he comes back to this over and over again. He treats death really in all its forms as an open door into life. And that's actually, you know, one of the core truths um, of my book, Spiritual Grit, that I just mentioned it came out in April of last year. Um, Spiritual Grit, by the way, is a really great companion book for your journey into the Easter season. If you're looking for something that will help kind of set the spiritual climate for you as you head into the the greatest holiday of the church year, uh, Spiritual Grit would be a fantastic companion for that because this sense of uh, death to life kind of filters through the whole book. It's really a book about where do we get the strength we, we really need to persevere. And when we talk about persevering, we're always talking about having to deal with little deaths in our life. So, That book, Spiritual Grit, also has two companion devotions. One is for adults and one is for teenagers. So you could get the main book and you could get one of the two companion books or give one of those two companion devotions uh, as a gift to uh, accompany somebody on their journey into Easter. What's great about those two little devotion books is that one of them has 40 devotions and one has 52. So they're designed to be sort of like a once a week sort of devotion, but in this case, you could read one one a day uh, right up into Easter. So you can go to group.com and check those out, or you can just click on the links that we put on our podcast page at painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. So now in this first set episode of the series, Death to Life, the Beckinator, who's right here. Hi. The Beckinator and I will explore the sort of seasonal approach to life that Jesus underscored over and over again. So in just a second, De- Becky and I were going to talk from our own stories about how we've experienced the seasons of death to life in our own stories. But let's start out a little bit with setting the stage. So in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon, the great wise Solomon, says these iconic words. Probably these are the only words you remember from Ecclesiastes. And maybe you didn't even know that these words were from Ecclesiastes. Maybe you thought this was a song by the birds, which it was. (laughs) They sang a song based on Ecclesiastes 3.1. And it goes this way. For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. Now, this isn't just a nice, you know, warm and fuzzy kind of thought about how to think about the seasons of our life. 
it's really seasons are embedded in our foundational reality. We live in a world that's boundaried by and infused by seasons. This is not happenstance. Like everything else in the kingdom of God, the physical seasons we experience are meant to surround and immerse us in this metaphor, this cycle of death to life to death to life we experience as we move through each year plants inside of us this greater reality that in our own lives, we have our own cycles of death to life to death to life. So death to life is a progression that the Trinity has embedded in the foundations of our human experience. It's not a hard reality we live in when we think about this death to life cycle. That's not a hard reality, it's a redemptive rhythm. And that redemptive rhythm is vital for our release from captivity. What I'm trying to say is that the seasons, the physical seasons we live in are not a mistake. It's not happenstance. It's not just an alternate way that our reality exists. It was created this way and designed this way from the foundations of existence that we would be surrounded by the metaphor of the seasons and the changing of those seasons and that these seasons are not static. So the Easter season obviously highlights and embraces this cycle. I ran across this little explanation of the three different primary seasons in the church and one of them is called the cycle of life. And that's the one we're starting. We started this last week on Ash Wednesday, the cycle of life. And it really beginning with Ash Wednesday and then extending into Easter, the cycle of life celebrates directly this death to life rhythm in our life. It celebrates it in the momentous occasion of Easter, but it also embraces it in our own lives. And so <clears throat> Lent is really that season of, of death. And whether you give up something for Lent or don't, the idea of Lent is that we inject into our life the whole idea of dying to something to experience on our own by injecting this into our life, some of the taste of death into our life by giving up something. And then that is followed by the celebration of Easter where new life is represented coming out of that death. And then the Pentecost is the last part of this cycle. And that's where we proclaim what has happened to us, that we were in death and now we've experienced life. And out of that, we proclaim are released from the captivity of death. So this is what Easter is really sort of trying to enclose us around. This pathway we're starting now is enclosing us in a very intentional way in this cycle of death to life. So Becky Nader, I thought it would be good for us to talk a little bit at the start of this about some of our own seasons of death to life to, to kind of take this out of the, the ethereal, out of the conceptual into the reality of how we experience seasons of death to life. So when I say that to you, what are some of the first things about your life, either now or in the past, that smell like this cycle of death to life in your life? Well, when I was in college, I had this community of people that I was a part of. I was working in full-time ministry. I was going to a Christian college. I was traveling to Romania on missions trips. I was in a place where I was in a community where I could be extremely vulnerable, where I felt safe, where we were taking risks for Jesus together. And we were really pushing ourselves to the limit. It was like this like perfect idyllic community that I was a part of. And then I graduated from college and I moved to Colorado 
And I struggled to find anything like that to the point where I kind of just kind of gave up and accepted whatever was in front of me. I threw myself into my career and I started, it was like years were going by in my life. And I remember talking to people about this time in my life. And it was almost like I was talking about a person that I used to be. I would tell people these stories of how I used to do this and I used to do that. I started to feel this like angst about the person. I almost felt like I'm not talking about who I am anymore. I'm talking about a person who's not even around. And it started to become really uncomfortable for me. It was like, kind of like, like I was being fake. Like I wasn't actually being honest about who I was with people because I was telling these stories, but they weren't really who I was anymore. And it was at that point that I think I realized if this is who you want to be, you're going to have to work hard to create it again. You're going to have to let go of these old stories and you're going to have to move into a new season. Mm -hmm. And I started to get much more proactive um, and the first thing I did is I just started being more vulnerable with the community that was in front of me. And what happened was that when I started being vulnerable with the community that was in front of me, that community started to change and that community morphed into a community that was more like what I was doing before. And I started taking more risks and I just started to be that person instead of having to be that person with this perfect community. You know, one, one of the things about uh, just listening to your story too but we recognize one aspect about death is it forces your hand. A death forces you into something new. There's no sort of wiggle room with death <laughs> in that sense. It's, it's over. And as painful as that is, one of the things, one of the, one of the powerful leverages it has is that you have to explore something new after that. I was thinking about this last week, uh, somebody posted on one of our youth ministry Facebook pages that we run here, a memory about from five years ago about when the first day of our national conference, which was called the Simply Youth Ministry Conference, that we don't do anymore. For the last two years, we haven't done it. So we ended that season, and it was one of those iconic, life-changing experiences, not just for me and others here at group who helped lead the event, but we included and invited in, you know, um, dozens and dozens of youth pastors from all over the country who helped us to pull this thing off and conceive of what we were going to do and served during the event. And we have so many memories of shared memories of pulling off a miraculous thing over and over again. I have so many memories of these late night meetings where we would all gather after everything was done for the day at like midnight and share stories in the kind of freed up, exhausted way that you are when you've done something miraculous together. How did we pull that off? And you're just sharing stories. So this event drew us together in relationship in a profound way. So people were sharing on the Facebook page, this kind of this, these pangs of both joy and deep sadness that that was gone and probably never coming back. And I posted on the page uh, how much I appreciated all of them and how their lives had impacted mine through this experience. And then at the very end of it, I said something like, but as I get older, I am more willing to embrace the sort of seasonal rhythm of life. I'm fighting against, I'm fighting less to hold on to those seasons. And I'm a little bit more willing to let go of them as they've gone into death, because it's really easy to try to, uh, you explained it just there, Becky, it, our first reaction to a death is to try to hang on to life, the life that we knew. 
it's human. It's a natural reaction. And part of this, I think, is what does it look like for us to sooner let go of the thing that has died so that we can participate in the changing of the seasons more fully rather than being distracted by what we're reaching back to. And so even out of this, out of the, the death of the Simply Youth Ministry Conference, I'm starting up something new in this June called the Youth Ministry Reboot, which is a totally different kind of thing. It's ha at our headquarters and we'll have uh, hopefully down the line two or 300 youth pastors coming to this event once a year. And it will be an immersive event, kind of like a retreat setting. It's gonna be different than this kind of high energy you know, big show event that we used to do. It's going to be different. But the embracing of the seasons means that you somehow find a way to let go of what's now done and look with hope into the next season that's that's coming around the bend. That's been true also of my participation in churches in the past where I just have these pangs thinking back to how rich that was and now it's never going to happen again. And I think about it, I'm sitting here looking at the Becky Nader and thinking, this has taken me a long time to get over <laughs> And I'm not over it yet. The fact that Becky and I used to work pretty much every day together, I'm not over that. The fact that that's not happening and it's probably not going to happen, that's a hard thing to let go of. And in fact, doing this podcast together every other week gives me a little bit of taste that that's not fully gone yet. And that's a good thing. But I feel the change of seasons in relationships too that are not tied to events or uh, organizations like a church, but sometimes you feel that in the context of your relationships as well. I and will have a little bit more to say about that in particular when we talk about the life part of this. Okay, good. So this whole idea of the embedded cycle that is metaphorically immersing us, I ran across this piece from a professor from the University of Pittsburgh who was trying to describe what happens during the season of fall. And he was comparing it to how our cells grow, reproduce, and then die. And that, that cycle that's embedded even at the most microscopic level of our bodies is going on all the time. And um, I thought I'd read to you a few little excerpts from this. And then, Becky, as you, as you listen to me read about this, I, I want to talk about this afterwards. The guy's name is Samer Zaki. At whatever country he's from, his name is hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> So the article he wrote is what the season of fall and science teaches us about life and death. So here he's talking about the cell and what the cell is made up of. So let me read a little bit of that. A cell even has its own brain or if you will, a control panel. It's called the nucleus. The nucleus contains instructions for building a cell and an entire individual. This four letter code known as DNA and measuring two meters long from a single nucleus dictates every single program task the cell performs in its life. Interestingly, the function of the cell does not end at maturation or when it finishes secreting the matrix, whatever that means, secreting the matrix. I want to say that was the name of my high school band, but it probably wasn't. The cell's function, the cell's function is only complete after its final task, which is amazingly to die. It's programmed cell death. The term program describes the organized, planned, and careful dismantling of the cell's components rather than a sudden, unpredictable ruination. So he's saying here that the cell's purpose isn't finished until it finally dies. And when it dies, it breaks down into its parts, and those parts are reassembled into something new. 
And then he begins to describe how this same thing happens with the season of autumn. He says, during autumn, leaves dry and fall off the tree. Despite leaving an obvious leafless and seemingly lifeless structure, it's only by shedding its leaves that the tree can survive the windy and sun-deprived winter when sudden gusts could blow down a tree laden with a large surface area of leaves. In other words, dismissing its leaves before winter, the tree prepares to reduce wind resistance and to save energy to reblossom in the spring. So the purpose of the death, the purpose of the leaves falling off is really to prepare the tree for new life on the other side of the winter season. It's necessary for the leaves to fall. Otherwise, the life of the tree is threatened. I just think this is fascinating. He compares this also to the death of the cells is what is preparing for the life of the body. If the cells don't die and reconstruct, then the body, the whole body is at risk. So when I talk about that, uh, Becky, what, what sticks out to you that, that um, makes sense as it uh, infiltrates into our experience of life? So I, I knew when we talked yesterday about this podcast that we would talk about um, the death of, of you and I working side by side for two years straight in the, in the bull pit together. And during that time, you guys have all witnessed this who have been listening for a long time. Rick became kind of my rabbi, like <laughs> uh, every week, like I was learning about what life was really like and what Jesus was really like. I'm going to get emotional. I'm trying not to. Trying now you can make me emotional. By just living life beside him. And, um, our planning meetings, I think, prepared me. They were like exactly what God sent Rick into my life to prepare me for like the hardest season of my life, the death of my life. Um, and a part, including in the death of my life, was the death of this beautiful relationship and, and me having to leave. And I, this is actually something that over the, the course of the last few months, I've been kind of reconciling a lot of the last few years of my life to this point. And this is one relationship that I have really thought about is, wow, when we talk about a, a rabbi and his Talmud, like this was exactly what that was. And I've thought about how the death of Rick and I's relationship actually is living on in me now. Um, mm. The work that I'm doing, I'm going to get emotional. Mm. The work that I'm doing now with these women, with more than me and being a part of this core team, I actually hear myself speaking the words of Rick Lawrence that were planted in me and that have just become a part of who I am now. Um, I was on a collective call today and women were talking specifically about something we talk about all the time here, which is working harder to get better. And there was all, these, all this advice being thrown around and I finally had to just unmute myself and say, but the real thing that we have to do is attach ourselves to the vine. You can do all these great things, that's awesome, but we have a shallow bucket and it, it runs dry every single day. So it would be better to stop and ask for mercy and for what you need for that day. And you know where those words came from? Rick Lawrence. And everybody was like, that's so profound. And I'm the one who knows I'm not that profound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm borrowing from my rabbi. Uh, and so everything you just said right there was ex is exactly how I feel about mm -hmm. something had to die in order for me to keep living on. And this relationship and this death, it's hard because I do miss 
being around Rick all the time and it was safe because I didn't have to really do anything. I didn't have to be out there. I was just behind him supporting him and like, mm -hmm. you go Rick. But a new life has begun. And I think sometimes we have to choose to step out. I, I could have just not joined this movement. I could not take on these leadership roles. I could not continue to put myself out there. And that would be a waste of all of the time that Rick has put into my life. Well, that's such a beautiful honoring thing to say, Becky. It's, it really is, it floors me to listen to you talk that way, but I, I embrace it. And the truth is also exactly on my side as well, because all that I learned from you, I'm still living out in my life all the time. The, the reason I called you the Becky Nader was A, to accurately describe what a, a catalytic force you are, but also that the fact of being an innator, <laughs> the, the how you innate things has infected me. It changes the way I see life. And, and isn't that true of any beautiful, deep connection that we have to either an experience or a person, they do become a part of us. They, they do live on because they've changed our trajectory. And there's always this temptation to say that season should never have ended. We should have had an endless summer. There's something wrong about this, that this ended. And of course, that's what we feel in the moment that we, we grieve. We, we grieve the falling of the leaves uh, because the beauty of that tree now looks spare and stark. But then we, if we're able to persevere through that season, we start to see oh, there's where that life is showing up now. Yeah. There's where the, that, this is where the death has led me to. This is where that life is being expressed now. And in part, you know, we never take for granted the seasons. You know, we're in a season now where Becky gets to be on the podcast every other week. I'm thrilled about it. But neither one of us has any sort of expectation that that's going to continue forever unbroken. We know that each of these moments are precious, and so we live in them. We enjoy the season when we're in the season, and we don't try to hang. I, I mentioned to Becky the other day when we were talking about this, I had an album when I was a teenager that I just loved. I played it over and over again. It was a Beach Boys album called Endless Summer, and that was really the Beach Boys ethic. That, that wasn't just an album. That's what they tried to put out there, that you can endlessly live in the summer, and they created music that made you feel like you could. But actually, that's a, <laughs> it's not possible. It's not true that we can endlessly live in the summer, and we're not created to be. Don't you think that that's because what those little moments we experience are like the kingdom of heaven, and that right now is not the time for the kingdom of heaven. It's still not here. We're here to bring it to people. And so I almost feel like the reason why we can only have short bursts of this and then we have to be sent out is to go and create the kingdom of heaven for other people who need it. And that the kingdom of heaven, we will get to live in it someday. And I think that some of it is that's a little experience of what it will be like. Yeah, the, the other night when I was with our uh, young adults in our small group, uh, I showed them again a scene from one of my favorite films, Dan in Real Life, which I've talked about many times before on the podcast. It's one but of your I, favorites. I, it, it, it is. One of the aspects of that night was I was trying to describe to these kids, why do I keep coming back to this film? Why does this film go so deep in me? Why is this film such a profound film for me? And it's a good film to other people, but they could take it or leave it. 
But for me, it's a revelatory film. Why is that? That's the great question to ask yourself. What is it tugging at inside of me? So I showed him the scene from this film. It was my favorite scene in the film where this family in a family reunion setting in a cabin by the lake has a talent show on one of the nights that they're together. And it's a large extended family and there's some tension in the story. You can see that this is heading toward a disaster in the story and you don't know what's gonna happen, but it's all surrounding this very close knit family, a kind of family that I didn't really experience myself. We watched this scene of this talent show where every person in the family got up and did some kind of goofy talent and they're all terrible. All of the talent was terrible. But what you see is this family just delighting in one person after the other. It's emotional. It's, it's laughter. It's everything all over the board. But the fundamental experience you have watching that scene is these people enjoy and delight in one another. And so when we finished watching this scene and we were talking about this with the kids, I said at the end, what you saw in my mind is a picture of what heaven is going to be like. It is a permanent community environment mm -hmm where we're delighting in each other in a real way, not because everyone is so proficient or talented, but just because we delight in their essence. What would it be like to experience that in an unending way where you're invited to the big house down by the lake, but you don't have to leave unless you want to. And every night is a different varied experience of your community together. And every night is a new facet of delight for the people that you're with. It doesn't mean that there's never any tension, but those relationships are surrounded by a fundamental safety. So I just said, for me, that is a picture of heaven. And that cycle, the endless summer cycle, I don't know what seasons are going to be like when we are permanently in the kingdom of God. I don't know. We, we're not given that knowledge. But if it was endless summer, broken up by a week of winter, or who knows what those cycles are going to be like, but whatever they are, they will match what our experience of joy is in moving through the seasons of our life. So let's transition then into a few sort of foundation setting stories that we can explore briefly here. This episode is where our, our hope is to set the foundation for the next couple of months when we'll explore some encounters Jesus had with people that had that death to life cycle in them. So that's what we'll be doing for the next month and a half. But on this episode, we want to start off with some foundational things that kind of helps us to understand what Jesus means and intends by this cycle of death to life. So the first one we're going to look at is in Mark chapter 4. So if you're not driving and you want to flip open your Jesus-centered Bible, if you want to flip open to Mark chapter 4, 26 to 29, this, is, uh, this section in my Bible, in my Jesus-centered Bible, is titled Parable of the Growing Seed. So let me just read that, and then Becky and I will talk about it. Jesus also said, now here he's telling a series of parables that where he's trying to help people understand and embrace the reality of the kingdom of God. So I've said this before. He's like trying to explain a foreign culture to us. So he's trying to find things that, are, that we know in our culture and use those as metaphors for what's true in the kingdom of God. So here he's trying this again the parable of the growing seed. So here's the story he tells. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. 
First, a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and then finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the father comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. So the question here out of this, Becky, is this process that Jesus is describing is in designed and intended to produce a harvest. So how have we, you and I, experienced harvest out of our death to life cycles? What's What's one way you've experienced harvest in this cyclical embedded rhythm in your life? Well, I think in this passage, what I see here is obviously the farmer is Jesus. <laughs> and you even slipped at the end. You said father instead of farmer. Oh, um, yeah. thank you for correcting that. And, uh, you know, I think the thing I like about it is that it's like, well, we don't even know how the, the, the growth is happening in us because the Holy Spirit is just doing it. When we attach ourselves, the growth just kind of happens. Um, and at the end, when we're ready, I also think that was the other thing is it's growing every day, but you're not necessarily ready. Um, it's forming, it's changing. And then when you see, oh, okay, now it's at this point, you're ready. You're ready to be harvested. Um, and it just takes time, death to life and life to death. It's a time process and you have to be patient. And sometimes you're in the growing season but you really want to be in the harvest season and it's not time for that. And he's saying that this process of death to life is happening in everybody's life, no matter whether you're asleep or awake, mm -hmm. no matter whether you want it to or not, That's it is point. happening. You cannot stop this cycle in your life. The truth is even in our physical life, we're born. And once we are born, we're on our way to death. And Jesus says, when you come to that point, where you come to your physical death, life comes out of that death. He's trying to project or uh, a promise to us that seems incredible because we can't see it and we can't talk to anybody really who's past the veil of death. We don't get any certainty with it. So he's saying the certainty that you have that I'm giving you is look around you. Look at how the uh, natural world works. Look at what happens to the seed when it's scattered and planted. Look at how it starts to grow, even though you don't understand how it's growing. He's trying to say, it's okay if you don't understand this. I'm trying to plant a reality in your life where you experientially know that a seed that dies in the ground will spring up. And against all odds, those little leaves will start to push through the ground, even if you don't understand how that's happening. He's saying, I want you to not just understand this in your head. I want you to experience this rhythm around you and recognize that I'm telling you this is happening in you as well. It's going on all the time, whether or not you want it to happen. And the end result of what the farmer wants is harvest. He wants good fruit to result from this. He wants our lives to be a nourishment for those around us. That's the end game. The second one, is um, the heading of this one is in John 12, and it's Jesus predicting his death. So this is John 12, 20 through 26. And here's how it goes. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Well, Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. So this is important to remember the lead-in to this, because here's what's happening. These Greek guys show up for Passover. Jesus is on his way to the cross. So the disciples don't quite get exactly what's going to happen, uh, even though Jesus has been clear about it. 
they uh, see these two guys from Greece show up and they want to meet Jesus. And they don't really realize the moment in time that is happening right then. So they're like, okay, we'll go introduce you to Jesus. And so they take the two guys to meet Jesus. But Jesus is single focused at this point. They're coming to Jesus asking him, will you meet with these guys? And Jesus never answers them. (laughs) Here's what he says in reply. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. So he's saying, yeah, I, I know you want me to meet these Greek guys, but you guys don't understand. Right now is the time that I'm uh, going to enter into my glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must also follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the father will honor anyone who serves me. I just want to say something at the very end there when he says, because my servants must be where I am. I don't believe he's intending the meaning that we often take from that because it sounds like you're going to have to go where I go. He's really saying, I love you. You're my beloved. I have to have you where I am. He's, he's expressing longing, not a commandment when he says this. So the question out of this, I have a couple of them here. What does Jesus mean when he says the seed remains alone? What is he talking about here when he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. When I heard this part, I thought of we are all given gifts and talents to use, but if we choose not to do anything with them, then we're probably not going to produce more kernels. And so to me, this is like stepping out and saying, I refuse to just let this die because I never planted it in the first place. I'm going to take this and I'm going to put it in the soil. And when I put it in the soil and I use my gifts it suddenly produces more and suddenly I'm not alone because I'm out there using what God has given me and what he's called me to and put it in the soil to see what will happen. But I do think we can choose not to put our things in the soil. Yeah, that's good. And I I was just thinking about the story you were telling about our relationship and how there was a death to the sort of our everyday kind of relationship and now it's sporadic. And what you described that came out of that. So one aspect of our relationship died and that's because it was the season of, for it to die. Mm-hmm. And now what's happening is the fruit of that relationship is expanding into many other arenas in your life, as is the same is true for me. The impact of my relationship with you is expanding into many different directions of my life. I have new capacities, new understandings, new kind of a new sort of spiritual emotional reality because of something that was beautiful and then died because of the seasons mm-hmm. now it it has the opportunity to spread out apart from just yours and my relationship to many different directions yeah because now that relationship isn't the way it was it's not confined to that anymore and that's a a fascinating thing it doesn't help us by the way in the moment Because when something dies, we grieve. We were meant to. Jesus understands that death causes grief. When he was in in front of the tomb of Lazarus, and he had not yet called Lazarus out from death, and he is surrounded by wailing and grieving people, Jesus begins to cry as well. Because he recognizes that even though what they're about to witness with their own eyes 
is a compacted cycle of death to life where Lazarus has been dead for four days and now he's going to come to life. He recognizes that grief is still a part of that rhythm. We often read these stories and we say, well, Lazarus came back to life. It's all good now. But we overlook the fact that these people deeply grieve for four days and they'll always have that with them. Even as they're sitting there eating with Lazarus, they won't have forgotten the grief they felt when he was in the tomb. And Jesus weeps when he sees their grief because he understands loss leads to grief. So this is not a way to suppress our grief, but it is a way to move through that grief and start to see the magnitude of life that can come through the death of something. The other question I had about this one was, um, what does Jesus mean by love their life and care nothing for their life? That's toward the end where he says, those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for this, their life in this world will keep it for eternity. So what do you think it means when he says those who love their life and when, when he says those who care nothing for their life? Those are pretty extreme statements, it seems like. Yeah, and I don't think that he is talking literally like, oh, well, what I'm saying is you can't love your life. Um, <laughs> I think that's where maybe we misinterpret the, the point. And these parables are so hard to understand, by the way. I took parables in college. They're hard, <laughs> they're hard to understand. And the people but, around Jesus would agree with you. They heard these parables. They were like, the disciples are like, what? <laughs> what is he talking about? Um, but I think what he's saying is if you are going to, if, if, if it's like about selfishness, right? If everything is going to be about me and my life and I'm going to love myself so much and I'm going to hold myself back from giving to anybody else because I'm going to protect it, I'm not going to plant my seed. <laughs> then I'm not going to plant my seed. I'm going to keep it for myself. And there's a lot of other parables where people are hoarding. They're hoarding their gifts. They're hoarding their talents. They're hoarding the things that he's called them to do for the world. But those who care nothing for their life say, you know what, Jesus, I'm yours. Okay. You gave me these gifts and these talents. And so they're yours. I'm going to go out and I'm going to give them freely and openly to everyone around me that needs them. My life is yours. That's the difference is I love my, it doesn't mean you can't be happy doing that. You could be very happy doing that. You could be fulfilled and you could be loving the life that you're living but you can either choose to hoard everything or you can choose to say, you know what, it's all yours. So however you want me to use it, that's what I'll do. Yeah, and I love this, that the exact words he uses are those who care nothing for their, for their life in this world. What he's trying to say here, I think also, is that he's trying to drive home the point that life goes on, that this life on earth is one tiny sliver of your life with me. And if you put all your eggs in the basket of this life and say this life is the only life that matters. We don't have, we're not looking at life from the perspective of Jesus. He's like a parent trying to explain to a toddler that, yes, we will go back to McDonald's again. This isn't the last time we're ever going to go to McDonald's. The parent can see that there are things in the future that are going to be delightful for their kids. But in the moment, that child thinks it's a death and it's over. And Jesus is trying to help us to understand, no, there's so much more wider expanse. So don't put all your eggs in this basket. One of the reasons, one of the primary reasons I wrote Spiritual Grit is it was, a, in a way, a response to a culture that has elevated safety above everything else in our parenting culture. The be safe culture is what I call it, 
where parents say to their kids over and over again, as a way of expressing love, be safe. And the truth is that is, couldn't be more contrary to our calling with Jesus. Jesus doesn't call us to be safe. He calls us to risk on behalf of the kingdom of God. And in some cases to risk it all, not because we should, but because we can't help ourselves. We want to risk our whole lives because we've found the deepest, most intimate passion and connection we could ever find. And of course, we want to give up our own little paltry treasure in comparison to the huge treasure we've discovered in the field. <laughs> we want to sell everything we have to buy that field so we can get the treasure. That's what Jesus is saying here is when you find a great treasure, and the great treasure here is his heart, when you find a great treasure, then it's not such a big deal to give up the other things in your life to get that treasure. It's not a should. It's just natural. It's organic. So the last thing we're going to read is actually from the Apostle Paul. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 38. It's an interesting little spin on this whole death to life cycle. So here Paul is speaking to the followers of Jesus in Corinth, and he says, but someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question, Paul says. When you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever it is you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. So he's saying the seed is different than the plant that comes from it. And here he's saying that our own experience of life right now is only the seed of the plant that will come. So what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean that our life is only the seed of the plant that will come? How does that strike you, Becky? Well, I think it's obvious that we're all going to come back as unicorns. Oh, <laughs> mark this moment, people. The Becky Mater has planted her flag in the land of unicorns. <laughs> Uh, no, I think what it's saying is like, we don't have, we're not, we don't know how, what we're going to come back as. I think that the version of what we come back is, is going to be what we would have been like without sin in the world. You know, sin has altered our genes and it's altered everything. I mean, we come back with all these like different disorders that we're born with and all this stuff is, is a result of sin. So um, I think that whatever we come back as is going to be without sin, whatever that looks like, but probably without all of the, the hardships and ailments that sin brought into our bodies and even to new, newborn babies' bodies. And if you take this uh, description that he's giving outside of the physical de death realm, because this same cycle he's talking about is true of us right now, we are living eternal life right now, experiencing little deaths and big deaths, and, and this big one, the physical death, he's trying to answer what will we become? Well, we're not going to look like the seeds we are now. But it's also true right now in our eternal life that we are living in this moment that these deaths, which take us from the place of a seed to the place of a plant, something big and beautiful and different grows up out of that dead seed. And we, you, Becky, you and I know from our own stories, our own experiences, that these things that have been deaths in our lives on the other side of that is a more beautiful version of ourselves in so many ways. We don't look like the seed we were anymore. Nobody who is healthy of mind plans their own death. We're not saying that death is something to pursue. We're saying that death is part of the seasons of life. 
whether they're little or big, they're going to happen in our life. Paul here is trying to describe what happens when that seed enters the ground. It looks one way, but when it dies, it gives life to something new that's new and beautiful that wouldn't exist if the seed hadn't been planted in the ground in the first place. So you could read this both ways, the literal way of we have no conception of what we're going to look like on the other side of our physical death, but Paul is promising us that it's going to be vastly different than the seed that gets planted. But it's also true in the cycles of our everyday life as well. So, and to close out this episode, let's talk a little bit about how we acclimate ourselves better to the seasons of life. If this is always happening under the surface, death to life, back to death and back to life, what are some things that help us prepare for this? And even as we prepare to celebrate the ultimate death to life cycle at Easter, one of the things I think about is I'm, I'm asking myself this question all the time, even now, is what would it look like to stop fighting winter, to stop hanging on to summer as much as I do? That's kind of embedded within my response to those who were grieving over our, those days of the conference that were gone forever now. My response was, I'm trying to learn what it feels like to voluntarily let go, to sort of recognize the role of winter and its place in my life, and that winter leads to new life on the other side. And because I can't see that new life, it's really hard to let go. But what would it look like for me to stop fighting winter and stop hanging on to summer? How does that strike you? Does that fit within even the last year or two of your life, Becky, how does that whole idea of not fighting winter and not hanging on to summer, how does that resonate with your own experience? It reminds me of the Danish art of huga, which is, it's a philosophy that is designed around helping people survive the really cold winter depression that happens as a natural cycle. And I've actually seen some people talking in Instagram, like, I just, I'm really depressed every winter. I don't know how to do it. And so it's about a mindset like of cozy. So we know that we don't get outside as much as we do in summer. And so we put on fur coats and we prepare with tons of really warm clothes so that we get out and we walk and we get outside because we know that being outside will help us battle some of our depression. We cozy up our space and make it happier so that we're prepared that we're going to be stuck inside. We have fur blankets and all this stuff. And the whole philosophy of it was turned into a world market product campaign where you can <laughs> spend tons of money to hook up your space. But it, the Danish art of hygge is actually about battling the depression. It's about being prepared that winter is a time when we get sad and we isolate from our friends. And so instead of doing that, we're going to be prepared so that we still get out and have dinners with our friends, that we still go outside, that we still, that we enjoy our space inside more because it's so cozy and relaxing. That's what it reminds me is if you're going to have to go through winter and you know it, then be prepared for it. What do you have to do to be prepared for winter? And what we're being prepared for is the recognition that in this season of winter, the temperatures drop so low that they can kill you if you're not prepared. And that is so true of these seasons of our life. Winter is serious business. And you're talking about one kind of preparation for making it through those long, cold, dark nights where you inject a warmth into those nights. But if we are ill-prepared or we're in, in denial that winter is coming and we won't accept that winter is upon us, then we are going to face the bite of winter. 
we have to first acknowledge winter is coming. Oh, I'm in winter right now. And I'm not going to make believe I'm not. I'm going to adjust who I am and what I'm doing to account for the fact that I'm in winter now. And we will never make it to summer if we don't move through winter. If we refuse to accept that we are in winter, then we'll never really make it past winter into summer in the, in the end. So the miracle of those, those little plants that I described before, like in our house, we have perennials that come sprouting up through the hard ground in the spring. And it always amazes me. I'm like, because in the winter, you look at all the snow on the ground here in Colorado and how cold it's been this winter. And you think nothing could have survived under there. You know, it all should be dead. And then in like in April, these little shoots start to come up and, you, and it's like a miracle. How could those things have survived? Sometimes I think the same thing about all the bunnies in our neighborhood. How do these bunnies survive minus 10 degrees? What's going on? How can you make it? How can the squirrels make it? And yet they do. They're prepared somehow for the winter. They change what they're doing so that they can survive the winter. So the miracle of the perennials sprouting up in the spring really is our preparation in the winter that, that, that there is life coming, that even though all looks bleak now, we have the hope and certainty that life is on its way. So one way I think to think about this is what's frozen or dead in your life right now? What seems stark and empty and hopeless right now? Well, that's winter. <laughs> uh, that's the starkness of winter. So in that sense, Becky, when you think about what helps you, what has helped you in the starkness of winter to have a sense that spring is still coming, even though you cannot see it. I know sometimes all of us, including you, have doubted whether spring is coming, but what has helped you to remind you that spring is coming? So the work that I did before the winter came was one, I got radically vulnerable with people. The four years before my life fell apart, I started intentionally being radically vulnerable with, with the people around me in my life. And I think that that's one of the things that saved me. The other thing is that I got very intentional about creating a community around me. I wasn't isolated when winter came. I actually had a lot of people that were around me that even when I left did not give up on me. They were Marco Poloing me. They were calling me on a regular basis and checking in. But because I had that community, I was prepared to go through winter. The other thing I would say is that I was so connected to Jesus before all of this. Mm. Um, I had his words written on my heart and his truth in my spirit. I knew all the mechanisms that I needed to do to stay connected to him. And all of those things, I think anybody else might not have made it through the winter that I went through. If I hadn't decided to, to do those things well ahead of winter, I didn't even know winter was coming, but ahead of winter, I was so prepared to go into winter. I love that. And, and it made me think as you were saying that Jesus didn't say, let me point you to the way, or let me point you to the truth, or let me point you the way to life. He didn't say that. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So our attachment to him isn't simply our uh, Christian act of service or even worship. It is the desperate branch clinging to the vine. And in that clinging, in that attachment, we are attaching ourselves to the way, to the truth, to the life. When we're in winter, 
we don't need somebody to point us the way out of winter. We need to be immersed, embedded in the way, the truth and the life that leads us out of winter into the next into the next season. Um, every morning when I go out to get our newspaper on the driveway, I usually, no matter how cold it is, go barefoot. And my daughter, Emma, always says, Dad, you look like you're insane when you do that. If the neighbors come by and you're barefoot on the driveway, I'll be so embarrassed because you look like you're insane. Why do you do that? And I tell her, this is going to sound bizarre, but I tell her, I want to experience just for about 30 seconds the full impact of winter. So I go barefoot onto the driveway and I experience, whoa, this is severe cold. And I have the feeling of it in my body. And part of the, our experience of moving through the seasons is to be in the season you are, to not try to fake your way through it or talk your way out of it, but acknowledge the season you are in and experience it for what it is with, and the only way you can do that is if the, you know spring is coming. There's a great, there's a great, I think the most famous thing Tony Campolo ever did was he preached a sermon, I think it was called Friday's Here, but Sunday's on the way. It's such, if you, if you get a chance, look it up on YouTube, Friday's coming, but Sunday's on the way by Tony Campolo. And it is such a powerful picture of this moving through the seasons into life. And at Easter, yes, Good Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. And that same rhythm is embedded in our life. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, uh, you can find out more information, but in further detail on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. Remember, also, you can check out that great companion in your own journey from death to life during this season in Spiritual Grit and its two companion devotions. You can find those at group.com and check them out. Or we have, we've got links on our podcast page at paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com and um becky nader i think you have a more than me event coming up in dallas is that right when is that happening yeah i will be in dallas march 23rd so if any of you are interested in meeting up with me in dallas go to morethanme.com click on the events page and come join us this is an event where everybody just sits around at tables and talks and there's lunch and this is not like a stage and everybody goes behind the stage and you don't meet anybody. Everybody is just in the room together and the community is amazing. So please, please, if you're in Texas, come see me. Especially designed for women, of course. And oh my gosh, if you could meet the Becky Nader face to face. oh, I would I can... give you a hug. Yeah, you should go. You should yeah. go. I would give you a hug. <laughs> well, gang, thanks. Well, uh, Becky Nader will be back in a couple of weeks and um, next week. I think I'm going to try to get my daughter Lucy on this podcast. So that'll be fun. So we'll see you again next week. Uh, and we'll see the Becky Nader in a couple weeks. Bye. <laughs>